good morning again. This is a story of a local church in a very small town. The town only had one church building. But the building was having all kinds of a difficult time with this group of squirrels that had moved into the trees surrounding this building. They'd gotten into the attic and built a nest. They'd made a mess up in the attic. They had chewed air conditioning wires, causing a problem on a hot Sunday. There was even rumors coming from the children that the squirrels were chucking acorns at the kids on the playground. They were quite the nuisance. So the whole town got involved. The city tried to put out some squirrel traps, but the squirrels were too smart. Some local members of the church let out some stray cats to try to scare them off, but the squirrels were unafraid. The youth group, they took it into their own hands and said, we'll take our shotguns and take care of the squirrels. But the moms said, you better not do that in town. Finally, after months of problems, an old church member had this wonderful idea, an effective solution to the great squirrel problem of whatever year it was. He decided to just leave the front door open, And through the front door, he made a long line of squirrel treats and squirrel snacks. The treats led through the building, through the gathering place, and up to the baptistry. Where, as the squirrels made their way up to the baptistry, the old man met them. As the squirrels were eating, he went ahead and baptized the squirrels, declaring them members And the squirrel problem was solved because now as members of the church, they only showed up on Easter and Christmas. (laughs) Some of you are probably insulted by that. Today we launch into what church really is and we start with a pop quiz. Pop quiz, hot shots. Let's see if we can get this one. Easy, easy quiz here. Here's the first question. We've got two questions dealing with all the same answers. The question is this. Which of the following descriptions most accurately defines church? Is it A, a building used for religious activities? Is it B, an event hosted by a religious organization? Is it C, an institution or an organization that has a sign and operates with hierarchy and organizational charts, or is it D, a family of brothers and sisters faithfully following Jesus? Yeah, y'all know that, yes. That's as easy as like, who died for our sins, you know? That's right, we know it's D, but I want to ask this second question. It's the same answers, but as honestly as you can, and think about yourself, you know it's D. But which description do you personally most often use when speaking about church? See, it's telling, isn't it? It's telling and it's revealing that what we readily know in our minds that church is a family of brothers and sisters faithfully following and obeying and responding to the invitation of Jesus to follow him. We know that. We so often at the same time 
deny that answer by our speech, our actions, and dare I say, even by our zeal and our dedication. There's a Christian author named Richard Halverson who puts it bluntly, and, and yes, he's, he's being very simplistic in this, but he says this, in writing about church history and what church people have done to church, he says this, in the beginning the church was a fellowship, that's that word koinonia, centered on Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next it moved to Europe where it became an empire. And finally it moved to America where the church became a business. Woof. Now Halverson here oversimplifies 2,000 years of church history, but his point captures our attention, doesn't it? Because it has value. We have often, instead of becoming church, we have made the church in our own image. And we're kicking off the fall this year, the school year, to say let's recapture the beautiful vision of church from a Christian culture that has made it into something that it is not. Now, we're not going to do that through mudslinging and culture warring. We'll let pundits on TV do all the culture warring. We're not going to get involved in that. That is not the Christian business. What we're going to do is put our eyes back on Jesus. And for the next few weeks, beginning today, we're going to recapture what did Jesus say and what did the New Testament authors write and what was their vision for what Jesus said, that is my bride. That is the church. So we know it, right? What is church? When we ask the Bible in a short summary statement about being a spirit-fulfilled, gospel-centered life of the Christian, Paul says it this way. It's Galatians 6.10. He says, what is church? And he says, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to, and he uses this word, the family of believers. So what Paul's doing here is he's wrapping up his letter to the Galatians saying, here's what you need to be about. You've gotten mixed up in all kinds of doctrine and spreading a gospel that's not even the gospel because you're trying to make Christians back into Jews and you're messing it up. And he sums it up with saying, don't forget the second greatest command, love people. And you got to remember to love the church. And he calls it a family. So when we ask the Bible, what is church? Over and over again, the Bible, describing what church is, uses more than any other metaphor, family. It's a family. And so as we begin this morning, I want to just say again, welcome to church, but welcome to the family. A family that is not a building, Church is not a service or a string of calendar events. It's not something you can even go to. And it's certainly not a business distributing religious goods and services. Church is community. Community of people walking together as a family with Jesus, displaying the love 
of our Savior for the world to see. I want to pray over this, and I want to pray over our friends and family here, and also pray this morning for our friends and family and brothers and sisters at the First Christian Church. Let's pray. Father, we want to be church. Lord, there is times where we capture it, we act on it, and we live it out, and we see it in each other's faces, and we we surround each other in loving fellowship, and we know it, and we say, aha, that is it, and Lord, but there's often times where we, and we confess this to you, Lord, that we make church just into what we want and what we desire, and we form it in our image. And we act as if we own it. And God, we confess that that is wrong. God, give us a new vision for this. Teach us your ways and show us your path this morning and your desire for what you've created. God, we pray for our friends and our neighbors at the First Christian Church today, Lord. May your will be done there as it is here. May you draw people who belong to you into unity. We love you, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So I want us to take just a moment as we start and use our imaginations. You can close your eyes if you want to. Most of you probably won't want to, but to the best of your ability, I want you just not to just imagine church as good, but I want you to get a picture in your mind of a great church. If you started with a building, I want you to start over, okay? <laughs> You're like, hmm, it's got a pool, right? You know, no, start over. Imagine a great church, and by great, I mean Christ-like. Imagine a church as God intended it, as God died for it. So as your mind kind of runs here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to kind of believe that your mind can go pretty fast. I want to ask you a few questions and just try to picture a few things. What's that great church like? Who's there? If you're asking yourself who's not there, start over. <laughs> who's there? What do you... Imagining and seeing in your mind's eye, what, what are the interactions like between the people? What are the conversations like? What are in the hearts and minds of the gathered people? How are people treated? How are people cared for? Can you get that picture? Now I want you... With that in mind, to go ahead and grab your Bible or grab the app and open it up or grab the bulletin. Let's go to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 2 in a familiar passage today, but I want you to know that as we get to Acts, Luke is giving us a drink from a fire hose. Acts is this beautiful, condensed book. It's 20, you may say, well, it's 28 chapters, Jake. Well, but there's a lot, especially in chapter 1 and 2. This birth of the church 
Luke is trying to condense and tell you all the things that happened, but he can't quite do it. Because in chapter 1, Jesus is still on the scene, and he commissions his followers, and he says, go be witnesses into all the world. Start here in Jerusalem, then go out to Samaria, and then go out to the ends of the earth. But then, when he tells them to go, he doesn't really tell them to go. He goes, but wait first, wait and pray. And so, there's a handful of them that go up to an upper room, and they spend what could be days. This is about... Now, the day of Pentecost is about 50 days after Jesus' resurrection. And so, there's days in which they wait and they pray. Men and women praying. That's in Acts 1, 13 and 14. And they pray together. And then, by Acts 2, everything changes. A fire is lit. And more than just being lit, a fire actually divides. The fire of the Holy Spirit divides and rests on all these believers And in response to that, in the temple courts, Peter stands up. And he gives this incredible speech about Jesus becoming Lord and Messiah. And the church is born. It's lit by the Holy Spirit. The church is born and it explodes in numbers and followers. And all of us have imagined maybe being there. But then after this story, Luke takes a moment. By verse 42, and he goes, I need to sum all this up. I think it's because so much was happening or had happened that Luke needs to pause and go, I need to give an overview for a minute because there's so much I can't tell you everything. And in Acts 2, 42 through 47, he gives this unbelievable description. A description that no matter how many times you read it, you can't wear it out because it is beautiful. And it says this. The church, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many signs and wonders performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to everyone who had need. Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. Now there's a lot there, but not to try to be negative, but I want you to notice what isn't there. In this description of church getting off the ground, what isn't there is service times and events and corporate structures. Now, corporate structure does come a little bit later. There is organization in the church. But what is there, most glaringly, is family. Right? You could sum up 42 through 47 with saying, that's the kind of family I want. Where else is there that kind of sincerity and sharing and authenticity, it's family. And all of us probably have read Acts 2 and go, man, I'd love to turn back the clock and be there. I'd love to recreate or restore that church. I got bad news for you, you can't. Because you're not a first century Jew. (laughs) There's no way that we could, any of us could actually ever fully recreate the church as it existed in the temple courts on Pentecost or actually recreate any church at any time because that's not our goal. When we 
are only focused on restoring what is in the past, we end up missing the forest of the trees. The church's goal is to continue the mission here in 2022. Right here, right now in our culture. Even when we don't like the culture. And even when we stand at odds with the culture. But the mission is not to somehow recapture. It is to continue. And yes, there are lessons we must learn from the past. But we cannot stay there. Because when we learn to embrace and be church and embrace the mission and vision that God has given us here and now as a Christ-centered spiritual family, then we become equipped to meet the needs of our world like never before. And we do this not when we just are people who do church or go to church or attend church. We become a spiritual family when we be church. When we begin to live out what is already true about all of us, that we have more in common because of the blood of Jesus together than anybody else in the whole world. You share more in common with somebody who communed in a village in Guatemala today than you do with the person who voted like you in the United States, who's not a Christian. Do you realize the power of the blood of Jesus? That is the power of the church. And when we live into what is already true and what God is forming and transforming and we live for the one who has given and died for us, then we can start to be church and start to really be the church we're supposed to be. And it's already on the screen, but I want to give you three foundational principles for us to start to recapture To go back to the Bible and go, let's see what's foundational about the church. And the first one is this. It's on the screen. In Acts 2, what is clear is that the church is God's family. It's not mine. Now, I'm not saying you're not part of it. And I'm not saying I'm not part of it. But I don't own it. There's no such thing as my church. There is our church. But there's ultimately Christ's church. I love that last line of verse 47. You guys look at that in your Bibles there. It's not going to be on the screen, but it's, it's, it shows who owns the church, right? All these great things are happening, this devotion and fellowship and breaking of bread and prayer and teachings. But the last line is the Lord added to their number daily those who are being saved. It's this tagline by Luke to say, guys, this is God doing this. He birthed this. He started this. It's his bride, and he's making it beautiful. In other words, Scripture's showing us this is God's team. This is God's bus, not yours. Now, we've all been there. There's nothing quite like getting picked last to be on a team, right? Some of you have been there recently, maybe. Man, getting picked last for the kickball or dodgeball team and the Playground, it was heartbreaking, right? Last to be asked to a birthday party is, is, trouble, is, is troubling. Last to be thought of and cared for by people you thought cared for you is tough. We like first things, and we like to create our own teams. We like to make sure. I remember years ago, we did a father-son youth group paintball tournament with my kids when I was in Edmond. It's all the dads got together, and we were like, this is our chance. 
you know, we're going to get those stinking kids. And I was a youth minister. I didn't have a teen at the time, but I could feel the, the dad energy coming out of there like, hey, I can't spank this kid, but I can shoot him with a paintball, right? And so all the dads got together, and we picked teams, and we were like, it's going to be dads versus teens. And we're thinking, all the dads were like, we shoot guns so good, we're going to smoke these kids. And we got out there, and I got picked on the dad team just by default on age, and we got destroyed. The teenagers, I don't think we got one of them out. We were all coming out with welts and yeah, whelps, and we were like hurting, and all the dads were like, oh, I'm so sore, and kids shot me in the face, you know. And I got shot underneath my mask right in the jaw, and it cut me. I was bleeding. And all our plans of being on the team got flipped upside down. Those teens waxed us. And so I love kind of when things get flipped upside down like that. I laugh about that now. That day I wasn't real happy about it. But look at Jesus, how he forms a team. I want to, I want to remind you guys this. This is in Luke 6. Same writer of Acts. Look how he forms a team. And it shows us here in who he chooses to be his followers, his disciples, who become the apostles, it shows us how it's his church. It's his family. The passage says this. One of those days, Jesus went on a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. This is a big decision, right? So when morning came, he called his disciples to him and chose 12 of those whom he designated apostles. Simon, who he named Peter, he changes Simon's name. Simon means to change your mind or vacillate. He changes his name to Peter, which means rock. Pretty cool. His brother Andrew, James and John, all fishermen. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus. Simon, who was called the Zealot. Judas, son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. He was like, I need two Judases on this team. But here's what I love, is to build and inaugurate the kingdom of God and to call attention to the kingdom of God has come near, which would later become the church in Acts 2, Jesus assembles not a team of all-stars and MVPs. He assembles a team on his bus of outcasts and misfits. They're not educated and wealthy. They're not the powerful and influential. They are divided amongst values and politics and education. If you look at it, and we don't have time to do it, and think about what we know about each of those guys, none of them had any reason to be together other than maybe the four fishermen. Most probably glaringly is consider Matthew the tax collector and Simon the zealot. One was partnered with Rome to make money. The other was partnered with a group called the zealots to kill Romans. They had nothing in common. One a freedom fighter, the other a turncoat. They didn't belong on the same bus. And yet, we read in Acts 1, 14, that there they are in prayer together in one accord, which wasn't a sedan. It was a stupid preacher joke. It was one heart being the church. And that's the point. Guys, we need to recapture this. If we're going to be a people who realize what church is and we're going to be church, we have got to recapture a heart for unity. Family unity is not something the church finds through common interest. 
As much as we want it to be in America, unity is not going to be found in shared political ideology. And it's not going to be found in shared backgrounds. Unity comes from serving the Lord together and being washed in the blood of the Lamb. There's a lot in our world, as a side note, I want to say this. There is a lot in our world to be fearful of. We could probably run a long list of what to be worried about right now. But I'll tell you, one thing that keeps me up at night is the increasing idea in our culture of groups of people believing that their group would be better off if those people would just not be around. We are living in a culture of scapegoating and us versus them. And when we start to learn that church is God's family and not mine, then the church actually begins to learn and stand as an alternative people in a polarized world. And I got news for you. It's kind of bad news. But if the ideal church that you have in your mind is a church where everyone thinks and acts and behaves like you, it's probably a good indication you're driving the bus and Jesus isn't. And it's time to put him back in the driver's seat. I love this Christian shirt I saw the other day. It said, Jesus is not my co-pilot. Meaning, he's the pilot. It's not Jesus take the wheel, it's Jesus owns the wheel. Who sang that song? It's terrible. (laughs) It's not Jesus take the wheel. Jesus owns the car that you got in. You were invited into it. You didn't buy it. And so this is God's family. And the second thing Acts 2.42 tells us is this. As we get into this is when we look at this description of the church, church is people, not individuals. And you're going to say, Jake, you talk about this all the time. I'm going to until we start to get it. Acts 2.42, just give a quick cursory look over it. Look at the pronouns that are there. It's they devoted. Everyone was filled. All the believers had everything in common. They sold property. Every day they met. They broke bread in homes. And I know this isn't well received. I know that in our individual world, this is not popular. And this actually may even come to a shock to some of us. But did you know that the following phrase does not appear anywhere in Scripture. Personal relationship with Jesus Christ. (laughs) It's not in there. We talk about it all the time. We talk about, I need a personal relationship with Jesus. And I think if Jesus would hear, he'd go, come again? Now, do you need to have time with the Lord? Yes. Am I saying that those things are not important? Not at all. But... The idea of a personal relationship with Jesus is a made-up phrase brought to you by America's favorite idol, not Kelly Clarkson. That's an old throwback, holy cow. America's favorite idol, church, is this, and it's the one we don't want to admit. It's called individualism. That's our favorite idol. We uphold and applaud the rugged, lone ranger who gets it done, the pioneer, the entrepreneur, the explorer. But Scripture is clear. It never separates you apart from us. It never separates me from we. And church is not me and God. It's always us and God. 
I want to give you an example of that because you may say, well, look, there's some individuals in the Bible that really do some good stuff. And one of those would be Daniel. He's kind of one of those rugged, individualistic guys that we can look at and say, that's our guy. He looks like he's sometimes doing everything by himself. By Daniel 6, it looks like he's all alone, living out faith. But that's a little bit misleading on our part, probably reading our culture of individualism into Daniel. Because when you notice his prayer in Daniel 9, here's what, how he prays. Look at how Daniel prays. Yeah, Daniel was a, maybe alone. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, we don't know where they were by Daniel 6. He gets thrown into the lion's den alone. But look at how he operates. He never separates his faith from his people's faith. And he prays, Lord, this is a great prayer. This is a good prayer for tonight, Barry, for, for prayer walk. Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. We have sinned and done wrong. We have been wicked and have rebelled. We have turned from your commands and laws. We have not listened to your servants and prophets who spoke in your name to our kings, our princes, and our ancestors, and to all the people of the land. Here's what I love about this prayer. And lean in with me here. God's people were guilty of every one of those sins that Daniel just confessed. But incredibly, what we know about Daniel is Daniel was not guilty of any of these sins. He hadn't listened. He hadn't bowed the knee to Nebuchadnezzar. He hadn't become a Babylonian. He had kept the faith. But yet, even without participating in those things and being innocent of those things, he chooses to know and confess with his people. You have a personal relationship with Jesus. But that relationship with Jesus never disconnects you from other people's relationship with Jesus. And man, we struggle with that. Belonging to Christ means belonging to his people, whether you want to or not. If one part rejoices, we rejoice. If one part mourns and suffers, we mourn and we suffer. We are in this together. And finally, the last one is church as a family fellowship, not church membership. I had a friend years ago that was so excited. The new year had kicked off and, you know, busiest time of the year at any uh, workout gym, any CrossFit cube, whatever it is, busiest month is January. And the year kicked off and he got a great deal, and it was only for the whole year. If he paid for the whole year, it was only 10 bucks a month. And he could pay for a membership, gym membership, for $120 for the whole year. He was excited in January and talked about it and talked about it, and then we never really heard from him for the rest of the year. Of course, we saw him every day. He was on our church staff. But at the end of the year, he was kind of laughing about it. And he said, man, I haven't been to the gym much, and I paid for that back in January. And so we said, well, do the math. How much did it cost you per visit? And so he, it didn't take him long because he paid $120. He goes, I paid $60 per visit. <laughs> He'd gone twice. Now, we can be a member of a country club. We can be members of gyms or the library or social club, Kiwanis. We can even be members of the Jelly of the Month Club. But the gym didn't save your soul, and jelly does not unite you with other believers. The church is more than membership. It is a people of fellowship. 
living out the life of Jesus together. Devoted, dedicated, caring, hopeful, patient. But most of all, and I wish if we could just capture this, the church as a fellowship is a group of people who are all in. All in. Notice in the description of the early church in the passage we began with in Acts 2, there is no one hero. It doesn't say, well, John was breaking bread for everybody and Peter was devoting himself and everybody was kind of looking at his devotion and James was selling his property. Now there's fellowship. It's all, it's everyone together. That's a great word. It's koinonia. You need to highlight that word fellowship in that passage. Koinonia means togetherness. It means devotion. It means dedication to someone else. But my favorite word that defines it so well for me is koinonia is participation. Participation, not in an event, but in a family. Together. In a unified family. So what do we do? What do we do with these three things? Because it's one thing to say it at what we call church and then move on and then life happens. But how do we learn to renew our hope in the love of God and renew our commitment to the owner of the church and to be the beautiful bride we're supposed to be? How do we learn to participate in the best of what we are? How do we learn that? I think the reason I love our church tribe so much is because I think we know the answer to that. There's a couple things that God has already given us that, that remind us of this. They're called baptism and the Lord's Supper because they are the participation in the death and resurrection in Jesus and their participation in the blood and the body of Jesus. They are a weekly reminder and sometimes multiple times a week when our teenagers are on fire of what it looks like when people give up their allegiance to the world and give their allegiance to Jesus Christ. I recently read a book. I forgot to bring it up here with me, so I'll grab it. Sorry. Running too fast. We're getting air in the microphone. Still got it. (laughs) I just recently read a book by a guy at ACU, a former preacher and a professor there, Jack Reese. And he gives such a compelling vision of what church is supposed to be based around, based around baptism and Lord's Supper. And I want you all to hear this as he, as he says this. And he's calling the church back to what is incredibly important. He says this, baptism and supper compel us to see the world differently and to see our neighbors differently. If Christ has taken our brokenness and through his own death healed us, we have little choice but to see and touch the broken souls around us. Not by working to teach them properly so that they may understand things rightly, but we do this out of compassion for their woundedness, which we of all people should know something about. For that reason, baptism and supper should forever change how we view evangelism. At its most basic, evangelism is not about persuading. It's about good newsing. Not about instructing, but healing. 
Not about correctness, but about surrender. Baptism is not so much the goal of evangelism. It is its starting place, its catalyst, its urgency, and its heart. Our death and resurrection, inaugurated in baptism and renewed in the Lord's Supper, makes us inevitably a people of good news, which makes evangelism not an occasional teaching activity by a handful of eager members, but it is a lived experience of the whole church. In baptism, we die to our own little worlds. We die to the little things we want, to being in control, to getting our way. We are born again, to be sure, but we are also born into something new, more sacrificial, more caring, more forgiving, more aware, more hopeful, more humble, more Christ-like. Amen, Jack Reese. In the Lord's Supper, I'm going to keep going because this just gets better. In the Lord's Supper, likewise, is an unrelenting renewal of our death and our new life. Each time we take bread in the cup, our baptismal commitment is re-embraced, our surrender reaffirmed, our eyes reopened. At the table, we not only proclaim Christ's death until he comes, we proclaim our own death until he comes. Christ's death and ours become one. We don't take communion simply because the disciples did so long ago and we're supposed to do it. We did it, we do it because of what happens at the table, of who we become at the table. Because the same power that rolled away the stone away from the Christ tomb rolls away the stone in our hearts here and now at the table. Woo! And if God can roll that stone away, God can surely resurrect dead people in the church. God can take a divided people by their beliefs or desires, by their selfishness and pettiness and willfulness, by their pride and passions, and in the name of Jesus, make that people one. God can restore our longings and our hope. God can make us generous and holy. God can. Not because we understood or understand everything correctly or do everything right. We never can and we won't. But because God, by God's very nature, is a roll back the stone, open the whole universe to the glory of his resurrected son kind of God. The kind of God who takes dead faith and resurrects it. Who breathes a holy gust into the lifeless lungs of dead churches which are full of dead people in the face of that kind of god we can receive the joy the re- with joy the resources god has provided the gifts god has given us we can learn to be peacemakers we can be partners in god's restorative work we can read and think and change our minds we can be harmonious we can serve others with christ's own mercy we can live by the power of the spirit fully aware that we are strangers here There is no government, no nation, no political party, no church, no people can save the world. God gave us his only one savior, God's own son, who died for us so that we might die for others, so that other people in the world can be saved. Amen. (laughs) That's so good, right? Woo, that's church. The people who at the table are reminded of what they did in the water And then they go out and show the world of what they can find in the water as well. That's what it means to be church. Not a place of individuals slightly getting along because we're supposed to be nice. But a church of a group of people who are willing to die for each other and die for the world because we have already died to ourselves. May that be who we are. So how do we do this? Here's a stupid little way. (laughs) 
And I will close with this. I want to encourage y'all, and you can do it any way you want. You can set an alarm, set a reminder, whatever you want to do. But you need to remind yourself this week that you are the church. Write it on your mirror, write it on your forehead, get it tattooed on your head. I don't aim backwards, right? So it shows up right, right? However you want to get it. But somehow, set an alarm, 7 o'clock, 7.30, 8 a.m. that says on that alarm every time it goes off, I or we are the church. So that wherever you go, you can remind yourself tomorrow, and Tuesday and Wednesday of who you are. Maybe you want to take it to the extreme. Maybe tomorrow, every time your phone rings, you need to say, Canadian Church of Christ. <laughs> and people are going to go, oh, I've got the wrong number. And you'll be like, no, you're not. No, you don't. Because you are the walking, breathing, living temple of God. You are the church. So I don't know what that looks like. Come up with ideas. Share them. Share them on social media. But let's be a people who realize that this is church, but it's a very small part of church. And the arguments and things we get mad at each other for, 75 minutes on a Sunday has very little to do with what Jesus wants us to do 24-7. And that is be church. If all of us just got dedicated to three more hours of that a week, we'd change the world. Easily. Three more hours a week. We'd change the world. Whatever you need this morning. We're here for you. We want to be church this morning, rejoicing, celebrating, praying, sharing, suffering together, sharing in the wonderful love of Jesus together. Let's stand and let's sing.